Well, welcome to part two today of uh, Powerful People. Uh, last week we looked at uh, power and strength and how someone gets strong. The day before last week, actually the last two weekends have been uh, in Sydney, uh, but uh, Sydney a week ago I was on a light train and uh, I saw a lady with a t-shirt which I thought was quite interesting, so I took a photo of her without her knowing, um, <laughs> which is what you do, it's just like CCTV, they're everywhere anyway and, and this is the uh, t-shirt and you can't quite read it but the, the uh, text on it is, behind every strong person there is a story that gave them no choice and uh, you know that's, that's about right. Uh, that was kind of part of what I was talking about last week. Uh, I, I think on balance, if you look at, um, uh, at your life and, and the things that have been most powerful for change in your life, it's probably been the things that were hard that you couldn't change. That's probably what it's been. And I'm not saying that they're not hard, but there's something about a test that comes your way that you can't get out of that grows you in, in a way that nothing else kind of will. Uh, and part of the reason for that is because when tests come, we kind of, and we can get out, it's like, I'm out at that point. And like, I'm down for that too. Like, if you're down for that, I'm down for that. Like, if there's a way out, let's take it. But uh, it's the ones that we've been given which we can't get out of, which force us to grow and develop as people. And they're the ones that make us extra special, strong. That's not even very good grammar. Um, I got home late last night. Um, no one likes them, but they're the ones that God uses to change and grow us. Today I want to look at being strong, um, and I want to look at the, the strength that God gave humanity at the very beginning, and then we're going to look at the application of it for both men and women. And I've actually, uh, Robin Kerr later on in the message is going to get up and speak to the women about what a strong woman looks like, uh, and then I'll speak to what a strong man looks like. question of where did strength uh, for humanity come from? originally uh, was way back in the beginning, uh, the beginning before sin. And uh, if you've been at Restoration Church long enough, you're probably getting to know Genesis 1 to 3 really well. Any, anyone with me on that? So yeah, yeah, probably can quote it word for word by now. And some of you go, can we just like go to a different part of Scripture, like just every now and then? And, um, but here's the bottom line. Our, our mission statement is restoring true humanity, and there's no better place to go back to the way humanity is meant to be than before sin came into the world. And that's why we kind of keep going back there. And so, grit your teeth, because we're going to go back there again today, because that's where power actually first started. Um, so if you've got your, your Bibles, um, it, it'd be good for you to have them open to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look at some scriptures. I'll put them on the screen, uh, but I'm going to look at some scriptures as we go. Many of you would know uh, Genesis chapter 1. It's the creation story. Uh, I'm just going to walk us through a little bit of it. I would just encourage you to go home and, and read the whole chapter and, and just meditate on it as you read through it and think about power. But this is the way that Genesis chapter 1 opens. It's a very well-known opening to Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is an amazing thing that God does. God created everything out of nothing. You know, sometimes I hear people talking about creative people, people who can do creative things. And, you know, we're not truly creative in the same way that God is. You know why? Because all human do, beings do is recreate things out of what already exists. God's the truly creative one, isn't he? He's the one that brings something that didn't exist out of nothing. And nothing is nothing. Is, 
Nothing. Yeah, good. It's like there's nothing. That's, that's what it is. Um, he creates out of nothing. We reshape what he has created. And you just need to know, like you just read this, and you go, oh, that's interesting, right? The first five books of the Bible are, are called the Pentateuch, um, uh, written by Moses. And, and one of the things, and you, you wouldn't have noticed this before, but one of the things that Genesis 1.1 is doing is it's drawing a distinction between God and idols. That's what it's doing. If you go to other parts of Scripture, to Jeremiah 32, verse 17, you see this, Our sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power. God's very powerful to be able to do that. And outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. You go to Jeremiah chapter 10, and you see this. You see, tell them this, These gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the earth. You see the difference here between an idol and the true God. The true God creates, he can do stuff. The idols can't do anything. They're useless. He's powerful, he is living, and he is active. Now, if you were here last week, I gave a definition of what power and strength was. And I said, and we actually saw this from James chapter 1 as well, that power and strength is the ability to withstand things and the ability to do things. Uh, that's what power and strength is all about. And if you look at this verse here on the screen, you can see that this verse is saying that God can do stuff. You see that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, God can do stuff. Uh, Jeremiah 32, verse 17, God can do stuff. Jeremiah 10, 11, idols can't. That's the idea here. But let's just move on. Genesis 1 verse 2, now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now it starts to get really, really good. See, I, I'm, I'm two verses into Scripture and I'm getting excited when I'm reading this. That's just when I'm preparing it, when I'm thinking about it, when I'm meditating on it, I'm getting excited about it. Um, the earth is formless, empty, there's darkness, there's deep water. Now, you, you don't... You don't have to know too much to know this is a little bit of a foreboding scene, isn't it? I mean, this is not your average sunny day at the Sunshine Coast. It's not, it's not what it's cashing out. You know, you look at it and you go, oh, it's water. It's nice. To, I like looking, looking at water. And it's like, not that one. You know, this is kind of stirring up kind of connotations of wasteland, of something that's foreboding. It's, it's without form. There's waste. There's nothingness. There's chaos. There's a void there. There's, there's emptiness that's characterized by a lack of order. There's darkness there. I mean, the Scripture's clear about the fact that God is light. Darkness has got a feel to it like it's anti-God through the Scriptures. And, and we see this reference to the face of the deep. Uh, uh, Genesis commentator uh, Wenham puts it this way. This frightening disorganization is the antithesis to the order that characterized the work of creation when it was complete. You look at Genesis 1 verse 2 and it's obviously uninhabitable, the world. Humanity can't live there. Uh, you're not going to take a person and put a person there. Um, it's, it's the barrenness um, before God begins to act. Probably even it's got a sense of being life-threatening, right? Um, and probably the word that I'll use through this uh, opening part of the message is it's a wasteland. That's what it is. Um, it's the shape of things before God makes them good. 
Now, Genesis chapter 2 retells the story of creation and the camera lens zooms in and you see it up close and personal, but it refers to a similar kind of thing uh, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 5 to 6. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up. Do you get the, you get the feel? For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. You just need to know that through the whole scriptures, not just in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2, but right through the whole scriptures, there's this idea of a wasteland before God gets to work. A wasteland before God gets to work. And you just need to know that's not uncommon in all of life either. You can be in a wasteland. Things around you can be a wasteland. You can look at it and it's the untended starting point before God gets to work on something. And here's, here's where it gets really personal for us. It's where we were before God started working in us. Anyone with me on that? We were a wasteland. <laughs> we were barren. We were unfruitful. It's amazing. And, and you see this in other scriptures. There's this, this beautiful uh, depiction of kind of a bit of a wasteland kind of idea in the book of Deuteronomy about God's people, uh, Israel, when they were in the wilderness. Here's Deuteronomy 32 verse 10. In a, in a desert land he found him, in a barren and howling waste. You see, it's a, it's a pointer back to Genesis chapter 1. You know, it's, it's, it's God's people are in this barren, howling waste. It's a stark picture there's something else happening in this picture, and this is the bit that really gets me going. Um, something amazing. You know what is going on is the Holy Spirit is hovering over the void. He's hovering over it. He's hovering over the dark deep. Now, if you're new to Christianity, the Holy Spirit is... Uh, God exists as three persons in one, and the Holy Spirit's one of them. God is hovering over the barrenness and the disorder of creation. What's he doing? Well, he's exercising his dominion and his power over the wasteland. That's what he's doing. He's personally present over it. And, and it's got a bird kind of feel to it, right? This is, this is what Genesis 1 verse 2 says. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Um, biblical commentator Sailhammer puts it this way, beautiful. The land lies empty, dark and barren, awaiting God's call to light and life. You see that? The land lies empty, dark and barren, awaiting God's call to light and life. This is what it is like in the beginning. Now, interestingly, is anyone... You've got to be careful. This is a test, all right? Does anyone know what the first thing that gets created is? Okay, all right, we all failed, that's all right. Jesus covers their shame. Light. Light. Light comes on the first day of creation and it mirrors over and over and over and over again through Scripture that God intervenes through the prophets and through Jesus himself to break into the world and bring light. 
That's what happens. If we go back to Deuteronomy 32, verse 10 to 11, you actually see in the next verse after the little bit that I showed you something really special and, and it's so similar to what is happening in Genesis 1, verse 2. In a desert land he found him, in a barren and howling waste. He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye. Listen to this. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. Now, I want you to notice something. This is almost the end of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the last book in the Pentateuch. What do you think God and Moses want you to know? They want you to know that God hovers over wasteland and he brings good to us. That's what he does. That's your bookends, right? He uses his power to hover over wasteland and bring something good out of it. This is what God does. God brings good and order to a barren place. He makes life happen in the middle of the wilderness, in the middle of the wasteland. And you just need to know this is the core of every single thing. This is the core of the world. This is the core of your world. This is the core of your world at work, your world in your home, in, in your home, your world with your children, your world with, with your entertainment. This is, this is the core of everything. Where there's a wasteland and there's a barren place, God seeks to be the one that comes over it, to hover over it, to exercise his power, his dominion over it, to bring good things. As I said before, first thing that comes is light. And you know, the biblical idea of light is, is about going from chaos to order. It's about truth. It's about life. It's about purity. And then as we go through the, the uh, creation refrain, uh, the creation story in Genesis chapter 1, we see this repeated refrain. And God said, and it was so, and God saw that it was good. What is God doing in Genesis chapter 1? He's exercising his dominion over the wasteland to bring about goodness and order. You see that? And I want to say to you this morning, that's the point of power and strength. That's the point of it, right? And that's what we're talking about in this series is power and strength. It's like some of you go, well, what, what are we supposed to use it for? Goodness and order. That's what we're supposed to use it for. That's what power and strength is for. We get to the end of the creation story in Genesis chapter 1 and just a really well-known few verses that we've quoted so many times in the church here. And we see this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Fill the earth, this is directive to Adam and Eve, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The word that's often uh, translated instead of rule there is dominion. Have dominion over it. This, this is the moment um, where God gives humanity power, like a base level amount of personal power, Right? And, and what is God doing when he does this? I'll tell you what he's doing. He's saying, be a mini-me. That's what he's saying. 
So what you see in the whole creation story is, is God exercising his dominion over creation, bringing about good and order, and then at the end he creates humanity and he says, you are made in my image, exercise dominion. I'm giving you authority and power. Now go and do what I just did in a smaller way, under my rule. That's the point. Go and bring about order and goodness like I have. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of debate out there, which you may or may not know about, where people go, is, is dominion part of being made in God's image? And it's like, it's all a bit redundant for me. Um, you know, dominion is so connected to the way that we've been made in God's image, I think, whether it's actually what being made in God's image means or not, it's all kind of a bit academic, to be honest. Here's the bottom line. God created humanity to be powerful. That's, that's just a given. And again, if we look at the order of God, so if we look at the example of God, I should say, that he set for humanity, we can, we can say this, we can say God gave humanity power to bring about order and goodness. That's why you've got power, to bring about order and goodness. Now, where is the first, you don't have to say this out loud, this is not a test. Where, just think for a moment, where is the first expression of Adam's, and it's Adam in this particular case, Adam's personal power? I think I just heard someone say, and he named the animals, right? Now, this, let me show you, Genesis 2. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he, he would name them and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. Why is this weird? This is weird because in Genesis 1, God's the one that names things. He creates them and he names them, right? But what's happened in between the creation story in Genesis 1 and what we see here in Genesis 2 is we've had that back end of Genesis 1 where God said, I'm giving you dominion, I'm giving you power. So God marches all these animals past Adam and he gets to name them. Now, I would run out of names by about six, right? Let's go, I don't know, just call that one something, right? Because I can't think of another thing to call it, you know, and then there'd be an animal walking around called something because Peter couldn't think of something else. But obviously Adam was able to do it. And do you know something? Humanity still exercises their dominion in exactly the same way. I mean, you see it on the news, it's like, oh, we, had, we found some species down three kilometres down in the ocean somewhere and no one knew what it was and then the scientists worked out it was a new thing and then what did they do? They named it. They named it. It's, a, it's, it's an application, it's an expression of power and authority that God's given to bring about goodness and order. So, let's, let's recap, all right? And just let me wrap this little section up. Um, when God created the world originally, it was formless and barren, a wasteland. But he hovered over it. And in a sense, I think the sense that you're meant to get from Genesis 1, and this is an awkward one because you go, oh, I, th I thought the world was, was good. But you get this sense through the biblical narrative that what God's doing by hovering over this wasteland is, is kind of restorative. He's restoring it, right? 
And that's actually what you see the whole way through Scripture after sin comes into the world, is God moves into a situation, hovers over it, uses his power in it to bring about good and order and restores the situation. doesn't destroy it, he restores it. He brings life in the desert, he brings good and order. So we get to the, the question, um, what have we been made to use our power for? And it's very, very straightforward. Um, I said it before, um, to bring about goodness and order. So here's, here's what's really uh, exciting about this, is I'm just going to lay out a few summary statements for you. And then by the time we get to the end of it, you're going to see how well this is connecting to the mission of this church. All right? Now, some of you might go, is he just spinning this? It's like, well, you go and interpret Genesis 1 and 2, all right? And you'll find that it's exactly the same thing. You look at the whole way through Scripture and you'll find that what God's called us to do as a people is what God's doing. And he's always been doing this stuff. Um, So we should just get on board with him. Anyone with me on that? Yeah. Here's the first one. God's called you to hover over your part of his world. (laughs) He's given you power and authority. And, and you know something? If you see a place, you go, that is, that is a dead set wasteland. It's excellent. That's exactly what we're looking for. Wastelands. That's disordered. That's a bit chaotic. It's just, that is awesome. This is like, you are right in the right place. What, what would God have you to do? He would have you to hover over the wasteland, to use the power and authority that he's given you to bring about goodness an order. And you, some of you go, well, that's pretty tricky to do. And yes, it is. It is tricky to do, right? But, but it's a great opportunity that's right before us. Here's a second statement. Um, who's with me on this one? We just reject disorder in a wasteland. Is anyone down for that? Just go, I reject that. You know, you, you, you come upon something that's a wasteland, you hear about something that's a wasteland, and you don't accept it. Now, I'm not going to accept that. Not any day of the week. I'm going to stand not just against it. I'm going to, I want to get, if there's an opportunity for me to engage with that, I'm going to hover over that and use whatever God-given power under God to do what I can to bring about order and goodness. And I wonder, and I'm not having a go at you, but I wonder whether anyone here has just accepted a wasteland. You know, if you've accepted a wasteland, I just encourage you today, reject it. Don't reject the people in it. Reject accepting it, right? <clears throat> Some teenagers here need to reject the wasteland of their bedrooms, probably, right? <clears throat> Maybe there's some adults that are like that too. So like, don't just accept a messy bed. Well, we don't want to get too OCD about it, but you know what I'm saying. Here's, here's a third summary statement here. We use our personal power to bring about order and goodness. <clears throat> what it's all about and this uh, last one here in partnership with God we bring about life that's what we're doing that's what we're doing Um, so (laughs) the mission of this church is perfectly aligned with the very reason God gave power to you in the first place you see that perfectly aligned you know you can go to a place and you go "Uh, I think where they're going is not exactly where God wants to go it's like are you kidding? Like this is like, this is like a neat fit. You know, you'll hear a thunk. You know, when you, when you get into it, because it's like this is like, 
is exactly the thing that God's up to around the place. It's the exact reason he's given us power. So that's it from me for now. Uh, but what I want to do is I want to stop now um, because I want to, um, in a moment, I'll just invite Robin up. And Robin's going to talk about what it looks like to be a strong woman. She's going to talk to the women in the church about that. Um, and, uh, and this is kind of the, the point of the message about being strong because women, I want you to hear what being a strong woman is like from a strong woman. That's, that's what I, I could talk about it and that would be fine. But I want you to hear about it from someone who I think is a very strong woman. And men, it's probably worth you just paying a little bit of attention as well because if your wife gets a handle on some of this stuff that, that Robin will say and some of the stuff that I've said, she might actually start doing things a bit differently and it's helpful for you to know what's been said to her. <laughs> All right? Uh, when you get home. So um, once she's done, I'll get up and I'll throw a few thoughts out about, about what a uh, strong man looks like. So, Robin, you want to come up now and, and uh, give a round of applause, eh? My problem is I'm always surrounded by strong men that make me do things I don't want to do. <laughs> Bad enough having a husband like that, let alone a pastor. <coughs> I'm sure all, we're all very aware that we're in a culture war. We see it everywhere we look in our society. And our culture wants to squeeze us, it, squeeze us into its mould, to bow the knee to its idolatries and to insist that we be what they be. It's nothing new, though. The Apostle Paul warned the Colossians about submitting, not submitting to the culture that they were surrounded by. In verse 2.8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human traditions and the basic principles of the world rather than on Christ. So what does our culture tell us a strong woman is? She's fiercely independent, depends on no one. She sees men as her adversaries and she competes with them on every level and she has to win. She lives her life on her own terms. Her identity is in her own power and life is all about her. You know, weak theology makes weak women. If we don't know how glorious and holy God is, if we don't know who we are in Christ, and if we don't know the blueprint that he's put in scripture to tell us how we should live. We will never stand against the culture. But a strong Christian woman knows her identity in Christ. She knows what she's been called to. She knows that she does it in his strength and not hers. She stands her ground and faithfully lives it out. You are also aware that there's a relentless assault on womanhood and motherhood today. I know society doesn't even know what a woman is anymore, but yeah. Culture says that children are an interruption to something more visible, something better, something more fulfilling. But God says it's a high and a holy calling. It's hard being a mum. In fact, it's a marathon. From the day you have a baby until the day you die, you're a mother. It's sacrificial, exhausting heartbreaking sometimes and it can be thankless and there are struggles and tears fears behind closed doors 
where nobody sees you. But God sees you. He sees a strong woman being poured out to raise godly children for the kingdom of God, running her race well with perseverance. And sometimes it's not always what she does, but who she raises. Abraham Lincoln said of his mother, All I am and hope to be, I owe to my angel mother. I remember my mother's prayers. They have always followed me. They have clung to me all of my life. That's a strong woman behind a great man. Motherhood is a power for good, but it takes strong women committed to their calling, investing in the generations to come. Single women find themselves in a unique situation. Being independent, their lives are full of possibilities. Along with the Apostle Paul, they can see in this season of their life their singleness as a gift from God to serve others. A strong single woman stands against the pressure of an immoral and pornographic society and lives a life of purity, knowing she is Christ's ambassador, set apart to bring honour to his name. You know the saying, it takes a village to raise a child. Well, she is part of our village. Having no children of her own, she invests herself in your children. She teaches Sunday school and she sets an example to the young girls of what it means to serve. Sometimes they foster broken children, offering love and hope in Jesus. Did you know that 80 to 85% of single missionaries are women? Come on, guys. Where are you? They take risks. They venture into foreign lands all on their own, serving the poor and the marginalised. History is full of strong, amazing women who have changed the lives of thousands. I suggest, mothers and fathers, that you read these stories to your children, to your daughters, and show them what a strong woman really looks like. Culture says, live for yourself. It's all about you and you're worth it. Strong women say, it's all about Jesus and he's worth it. One of the things that I've loved about serving in Asian countries is their respect for their older people. They honour and respect them for their years of life's experience and wisdom gained through hardship and perseverance. Sadly, in our Western culture, the opposite is true, leaving older people feeling that they have absolutely no place of value in society anymore. At Restoration Church, the women's ministry is based on Titus 2, where the older women are charged with teaching the younger to sound to teach sound doctrine and to teach them how to just live life, life skills. Strong older women know that their life's experience is of great value. They know they have worth in Christ and the culture of the day is of no consequence to them, whatever. They, they have a wealth of understanding. They have persevered. They've failed and succeeded. They've raised a family. They've lost loved ones. It's a rich storehouse that is meant to be invested in the younger women, to love them, to listen to them and to nurture them in a motherly way. The righteous, uh, Psalm 92 says, The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar in Lebanon planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of God 
and they will bear fruit in their old age. They will stay fresh and green. So that's the remedy. You don't need Botox. (laughs) Older women have a power to do good, to build up the next generation of older women who in turn will pass on the baton. Strong women, they might be wrinkly and have grey hair and expanding waistlines, but she knows that she still has a modelling career ahead, modelling the strong faith, resilient spirit, grace and humility. When I was a young woman, due to my childhood experiences, I was extremely insecure and uh, risk was just not in my vocabulary. My plan was to have a nice husband and a nice little family in a nice little town and just play it safe. But then I married Graham. (laughs) And I didn't have a clue what I was in for. He loved to take risks. He was pioneering new things. The harder it was, the better as far as he was concerned. He seemed drawn to countries coming out of a revolution or going into one. And I'm thinking, Lord, this was not my plan. In 1990, when communism fell in Romania, there was an open door. And Graham says, let's go. You don't know how long that door will be open. In 95, opportunities came in Ukraine. Come on, let's go. In 2008, Nepal came on the radar with all of its opportunities to rescue children and educate them. We even had an added bonus of surviving a massive earthquake. 2014, Myanmar came along, known for the persecution of Christian people groups and military coups. And what they said on that T-shirt was, I did hard things because I just had to, (laughs) because I was there. It was difficult, overwhelming, but you're there. you just got to grow up and step up. But God was there also. In my weakness, he was my strength In my inability, he made me able. And, you know, I think back over all of those hard things that made me grow up a bit, but I don't really remember them so much, but there are other things that have made me strong. I saw God answer prayers that seemed impossible. And it gives you strength. I've seen hopeless and exploited girls, sorry guys, grow strong, confident Christian women. And it's just such an encouraging thing when you see what strength God can give these poor girls. I met strong women in the Ukraine whose husbands had been in prison for years and they held their families together somehow under the brutal rule of communism. They're the things that I remember that make me strong because I see their example. And another thing that made me strong is I learned that God uses ordinary people if we trust him. We don't have to be anything great because God does it all. And so with all of the difficulties with that terrible husband of mine, (laughs) I've learned lots of lessons. I've been strengthened um, in my life and I'm hoping he doesn't come with one of those looks on his face and I'm thinking, what's coming next? (laughs) So strong women are investors. Mothers invest in their children. Single women invest in their community and their world. 
older women invest in the younger women and together, intergenerationally, we will adorn the gospel, adorn the gospel of Christ. Ah, women, did you enjoy that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, she's a good woman, uh, Robin is. I appreciate that so much, Robin. Um, she was so looking forward to that during the week. She slept well every night. Um, yeah, she's quite nervous about it. So thanks, thanks again. Robin, this one's going to have a little bit of a different flavour because I'm going to talk to the blokes here and uh, uh, just going to go through three things really quickly about what a, uh, what a strong man looks like. And uh, here's the first thing. A strong man does something. <laughs> like, just something. <laughs> right? You just go, well, what a good way to start. But it is a good way. I mean, it's the old line, right? Don't just stand there, do something. You know, and, and it's, it's, it's a strange thing, uh, maybe to you, this, this uh, first one that I put up. But this is actually one of the key problems for well, pretty much every church, almost every single church, um, and, and the men within it. And, and, it's, and it's this, it's, it, it, men in churches, most of the time, you're not going to find them doing evil things. You're just going to find them doing nothing. Nothing. Just do nothing. Um, and, and this is kind of, unfortunately, this is kind of a bit of a human trait, right? There's a, there's, a, there's a dude kind of thing where we just stand around and everything's going down the S-band and we're doing nothing. Um, how do I know? Because I've done it, <laughs> right? And because it's in Scripture. Adam does it um, at the fall of humanity. Here's, here's the, the verse after Eve's... Um, Eaten of the fruit, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now, here's a question. What was Adam doing? Nothing. Nothing. So here's the story. The devil is talking to Adam's wife. The devil is talking to Adam's wife. Like, he's talking to his wife. And he's doing nothing. Um, the devil's telling Adam's wife not to listen to God. If she agrees with him and eats the fruit, she will unleash every variety of death that will ever happen in the world. Murder, domestic violence, human trafficking, Drug production and addiction, disobedient children, bitterness, hatred, family breakdown, evil governments, genocide, multiple false religions, lying, physical sickness and death on a grand scale, war, the Holocaust. I could go on. What's Adam doing while all of this is going on? Nothing. Nothing. Actually, he doesn't do nothing. He does something. He eats the fruit that Eve gives to him. So nothing and then something and the something he does is, is not cool. He goes along with it all. Now, I'm not saying anything, any of this to criticize women or even necessarily criticize Eve. I want you to hear that there's a problem here. And I want you to hear this. Adam is a lame man. He is a weak man. You hear that? 
When you stand by and things are not good and they're going down the aspen and you do nothing, you're a weak man. I'm a weak man. That's not a strong man. Strength is for doing something. And James chapter 4 tells us that um, sin is, um, is two, there's two kind of aspects of sin. There's things that you can do that are wrong and there's things that you should be doing that you're not doing and it's wrong to not do them. So it's sins of commission and sins of omission. I go back to where I started today. Gentlemen, you've been given power to bring about goodness and order. To not do it is to sin. So what are you up to? What age are you? What are you engaged with where you need to be bringing about goodness and order? What chaos is in front of you which you need to engage and be part of. And we can talk about um, single men, dads, people who are, the kids have left home, stop watching YouTube so much. Videos. Because there's a wasteland out there that you need to engage with. I'm not saying it's wrong to watch YouTube, but if you're sitting there watching YouTube for two or three hours and there's a whole bunch of stuff in the, in the world or around you that needs you to engage and you're just kind of clicking out, that's not cool. That's not a strong man. Some of you probably need to play computer games less. Drink less beer. And be engaged with what's going on. That's the first thing. A strong man does something. Second thing, <coughs> a strong man takes risks for God's glory and people's good. When I was teaching uh, high school, I would often have a debate with junior high boys. It was a fun debate and good conversation that we'd have in class. And I'd put up a, uh, a video of some young man doing some stunt. And uh, I remember one of my favourite ones was this street in America where this guy built this really big ramp and he rode his mountain bike as fast as he could down this street, hit the ramp and then landed on the roof of a two-storey building. And uh, you'd show it and the boys would go, oh, that is so, that is so cool. You know, like, and I'd go, oh, do you, do you, is this guy a hero? And they'd go, oh, yeah, no, of course he is. He's totally a hero. And I'd ask them why. And, and they said, because he, he did something that was, that was really hard to do, it was really risky, it takes a lot of guts, and he was actually successful. And then, once we'd finished talking about that, I'd show a picture of a man that was probably 60 years old from a, uh, an American college where a shooter came onto the campus and he had a class inside. And uh, the shooter's walking around the campus and uh, firing the assault rifle. And he locks the door into his classroom and, and um, thinking, I, I don't want him in here for this class. And, and turns out he, the shooter starts walking out the hallway. It's a true story. The uh, shooter starts walking out the hallway and uh, stops eventually at, at the door of this teacher's classroom. And so he tells the students, you need to get out. Like, get out, get out the window. And what does he do? This, this 60-something-year-old man kind of barricades himself against the door and the shooter shoots through the door and kills him and all of his kids escape. And I'd ask the students, 
is this man a hero? They said, yes. And then I asked them, is he the same kind of hero as the bike rider? And he wasn't. He was on a whole different level because the dude on the bike did the risky thing for his own benefit, for his own kudos, for his own YouTube hits. The 60-something-year-old man did the risky thing. He did the hard thing for other people. That is a whole other category. I mean, it's such a different category. I'm not even calling the mountain bike rider a hero anymore. I might call him brave, but he's not a hero. Remember why you were given strength? You were given strength to bring about order and goodness. A dude jumping on to the roof of a second, a two-story house. It's impressive, but didn't really bring about any order and goodness. A dude barricading himself on the other side of a door, getting shot and killed to save his students. Oh, my goodness. You know, we're going to need a B-double for that kind of order and goodness, aren't we? I want to read something out of scripture of, uh, just gives you a picture of it and uh, I'd encourage you to go and read the whole chapter actually. It's uh, 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 14. There's um, a battle about to take place between Israel and the Philistines and uh, the text specifically says that there's only two people in Israel that have got a sword or a spear and that's the king, king Saul and his son Jonathan. And this little situation happens off to the side that King Saul doesn't know about with his son Jonathan. He kind of cooks up this plan. Right, and I think it gives a really good picture of what a strong man is meant to be. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, Come, let us go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Listen to this perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, I'm with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, come on then, we will cross over toward them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come up, come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. Right? You know what happens? I mean, it, sorry, let me back up a seat. You know what you'd call this as an Australian? What Jonathan's saying is, let's have a crack, <laughs> isn't it? He said, let's just have a crack. And what, who knows? You know, what, what are they doing it for? They're doing it for the good of the people of Israel and for God's glory in this case. We'll just go and we'll have a crack. And who knows? The Lord might actually do something. So they go to this Philistine outpost and the Philistine outpost basically says, come up here, we're going to give you a good flogging. And Jonathan and his armor bearer go, awesome, we're on, Right? And they go up there, and it's, I, I can't remember the exact number, so they kill like 23 Philistines in, uh, in, in about an acre. And then somehow Saul hears this uproar that's going on because of this thing that happened with Jonathan, his armor bearer. So they decide we're going to attack. And so they attack, and all this cool stuff happens. And it all started because Jonathan goes, let's have a crack. <laughs> you see that? And, and, and the thing that I love about this, this story too is it's not a solo crack. It's like, you with me? You with me? 
Let's have a crack. See, that, that, strong, that strong manhood, you know, is let's have a crack. And we're not having a crack to get YouTube hits. We're having a crack for people's good and for God's glory. I, I'm convinced that one of the reasons we don't see as many miracles in our country is because there's just not as much risk. And gentlemen, I just encourage you, um, take risks for God's... You need to be wise about it, but take risks for God's glory and for people's good. You don't have to be an idiot about the ones that you choose to take, all right? But don't use your strength for your own benefit. That's weak. That's weak. You know, unfortunately, someone brought it up again on the weekend with me. I was down in Sydney this weekend and... Let's talk about the effect of screens. They were talking about the effect of screens. It was a father. He's talking about the effect on his son and all kinds of screens. And I'll just say to you, find something real to do. And it's not that you can't do real things with a computer. I do real things with a computer all the time. But find something real to do. Start a business. Take on some leadership in a business. Find a cause to give your life to. Find something at church. Here's something for you to do that would be like attacking a Philistine outpost. Plan a church. It does feel like a Philistine outpost often. I'm speaking from experience. If you spend your strength on yourself, it will only kill you in the end. And potentially, there's probably some dudes in the room here that have lost a bit of interest in life. They've just settled. And, and part of the reason why life, the, the meaning is, is ebbing out of life for you is because you're not taking any risks. That's what God made a man to do, for goodness sakes. Why do you think it's mostly young men that are in the defense forces? Because they're the only ones crazy enough to actually go and fight on a battlefield and try and do something that's good. I know that women do it too, but that's, you get what I'm saying, right? And you spend your strength on yourself, you know what it's going to be? I guarantee you it's going to be a downward spiraling vortex that you'll find very difficult to get out of. I have seen it over and over and over Again, I remember this student years ago that got to, um, he was in this, he was the, the biggest online game at the time pretty much and it was, it, was a, it was, I think the name, I don't know what the actual name, but the kind of game was, it was a massive multiplayer game and um, he spent so much time on it. Um, he got to like number three in the world, you know, and I'm kind of, I'm sitting there and I'm kind of going, I almost feel like I'm in the presence of greatness at this point, right? But then I just went, oh, you haven't done anything. And, and the question I used to ask the boys when I was teaching them is, uh, who are you when the power goes out? Who are you when the power goes out, you know? And I just submit it to you, gentlemen. Where are you taking risks for people's good and for God's glory to bring about goodness and order? 
And, and here's what I'd say to you. If, you. if you are not taking risks as a man, you are not fully alive as a man because that's part of the way that God's made you to work. Here's the uh, last thing. I'll keep this one short. A, um, a strong man self-controlled. A strong man is self-controlled. I remember talking to this student years ago who was just obsessed with working out and being ripped. And because um, the thing that he wanted to be, he wanted to look strong in the eyes of everyone else. And he also, if someone, he said this to me, he said, if someone looks at me the right way, I want to be able to go and beat them up, basically. And that's a thing now, right? A little bit. It's like, does anyone know what I'm talking about? Like you can walk past people and you go, if I look at you the wrong way, I'm going to have a fight on my hands. Right? And I just want to let you know that if a dude like that, that doesn't have any self-control, he looks strong and he looks strong because he's worked out and he's ripped, but he's weak because he can't control himself. And, and if you're a dude that gets really angry and you fly off the handle really quickly, you just need to know that's a sign of weakness. It feels like strength because you're getting, you're getting angry and, and you're, you're kind of dominating the people around you, but it's actually weakness. Here's, here's the big idea about self-control. And the reason why it's strength is a strong man knows and is able, he knows the situation and he's able to switch strength on and off whenever he needs to. Is that you? And some of you probably just go, well, I'm not the guy that blows up at people. And I'm going, well, that's not the only problem. There's times where you need to turn your strength on when you're not actually turning it on. And you need to be engaged and do stuff in that space. You know, this is the, the biblical category uh, of meekness. I've said it before. Aristotle said that a trained ox is meek. It's not weak. It has its power under control. You know, you can apply this same thing to temptation. You know, if temptation comes along to you and you've got this part in your life where you regularly just give in to it, you don't have your power under control. You don't have self-control. And, and you just need to do an honest accounting of yourself and say, yeah, I am really actually quite weak. We want to be, gentlemen, I wonder who's with me. We want to be men who turn it on and off and we can turn it on and off whenever in an effort to bring about order and goodness where we are. Is anyone with me? Yeah, that, that's what we want to do. Growing in self-control is part of becoming strong. All right, I'm done. Now, I'm going to take a few questions. The... Um, the number for uh, texting in questions is up the top there. I'll give you about um, 30 seconds to, uh, to text any in that you might want to text in. I'll, uh, I'm not going to be able to answer them all, but I'll, I'll answer as, as many as I can. Uh, and just a disclaimer about questions. You can't say everything about everything when you answer a question. All right, I've got two or three minutes. So uh, if you hear me say something, you go, I think there's something else that you could add to that. Um, there is, all right? I totally agree with you, and you could add it. Um, so just, just be aware of that. Uh, it's not the, ex the exclusive answer to, uh, to everything. All right, here's, 
Here's the first one. Can you give a practical everyday example of disorder and a wasteland, please? Uh, I mean, there's, there's plenty. Uh, I, think, um, I think Robin referred to a whole bunch of um, disorder and wasteland pieces uh, in what she talked about and things that you can do. One, one if, I, if I was to be really personal, one uh, place of disorder and wasteland that I have done nothing in at times is, um, is, is with my kids. Um, and I'll just be, I'll, I'll be at home and Angel will be kind of working hard with them and, and, and trying to help them to go in a good direction and I'll just kind of tapped out um, in my head in terms of engagement in the place and uh, things just get disordered. Um, and that's not saying anything about Ange and her ability as a mother. She just needed someone to help her, basically. Um, and I know that sometimes there's... Uh, single parents and and they don't have anyone to help them and I mean I reckon that's just an incredibly tough job but um, relational dysfunction and conflict is an example of a wasteland I think um, and it takes a lot of wisdom to get involved in that but that that will happen in a family right and you know in every single family there'll be times for example where kids kids will fight uh, or they'll just want to do what they want to do and um, and there needs to be some ex- exercise of authority and power in that context to bring about goodness. Now, uh, it could be at work. Um, there could be uh, troubles and difficulties at work, and, and that requires a whole bunch of wisdom about that. People can fight in, in work teams and argue with each other and backbite and gossip, and all that sort of stuff can happen, and um, that's a wasteland. Um, and that's a place where... Uh, you could be praying and saying, "How can I, how can I bring something positive? How can I um, express uh, some of the personal power that God's given me? Not to rule over people, but to input into that situation and kind of contribute to it." For uh, for married women who don't have kids, how can she be powerful? Conviction of the Lord's coming over here. Do you want to say anything about this? No? Okay. Sorry? Okay. You can talk to Robin about it if you ask that question, but um, she, can, she and her husband can just get together and work out what they're going to do as a couple to do things for the Lord um, and, and in, in, in all sorts of spheres. Um, and, and she can find there's always people, like Robin has said, there's always people that need to be discipled. You know, and um, it's it's always been pretty um, core to us uh, behind the scenes that we just want people alongside one another, helping each other to grow. And there's plenty of uh, women in the church that could do with with your input. Um, you know, find some kind of trouble or uh, place of disorder or wasteland around the place and and lean into it uh, somehow. Maybe it's a mission thing. Maybe it's a leadership thing at church. Um, maybe it's discipleship at church. Um, yeah, get a get a sense of what God's calling you to do. Um, and obviously, if you're married, it's going to be connected with your husband, and so you'll need to talk about that. But pray about it and seek the Lord on it, and do it together, and work out what stuff you can you can do together. Let's finish with this one. How does the good news of Jesus fit into this? 
Well, here's how it fits into it. Um, Jesus came to restore things. And the way that Jesus came to exercise power is almost the complete opposite of the way that we most of the time think about it. We think about kind of, you know, taking people on. We think about uh, fighting people. We think about um, daunting displays of force and power. There's no more powerful human that was God that has ever lived than Jesus, right? I mean, how many religions want to find a place for him in their religion? I mean, he's a colossus. And, and what did he do? Well, he actually gave his life for you. He gave his life for me. He let himself be executed by Romans. You know, and sometimes, I think, I think with blokes in the church, sometimes you go, oh, that's, that's a bit lame. It's like, oh, do you think? I've thought that. But the more I get to know Christ, the more I go, he's the only one that took the full weight of sin right to the end, to the point of him dying. There is no one that's stronger than Jesus. And I don't just mean that in a divine sense, that he can do anything because he's God. I'm saying in his, in his incarnate person, he, went, he, he, he took the full power of temptation and the full power of all of our sin until it killed him. None of us here have done that because we're all alive, right? But you haven't had to carry what he carried. And, and the thing about it is, is he, doesn't, he doesn't force you. He doesn't manipulate you. He offers himself to you. That's what he does. And if you're someone here today and you're not a Christian, you need to know that God is not domineering. He's not that kind of person. What he does... He's a giver. He gives himself. He dies on a Roman cross. He lays down his life for you and me in the most powerful act that's ever happened. And, and, and the taunt of Jesus was, why don't you just get some angels to come and take you down? And it's like, yeah, he could have done that because he's that powerful. But it's more powerful to be killed for other people's sins and to not ultimately be dominated by death, but to come back to life three days later. Amen? That's more powerful. And now, you can't kill him. I mean, you couldn't really kill him back then, but you can't kill him. I mean, that, that was the whole plot after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, is uh, the Pharisees said, we've got to kill him. And I go, what a dumb idea. The guy was just dead, and Jesus raised him. Like, that's going to scare him. All right? But it's a little bit like that with Jesus. He, he died and he rose from the dead and he, he reigns in power. But his power is not coercive. It's not domineering. He, he invites you in. He invites you. And, and not only that, but he invites you to a kind of power that he exercises. And it's not dominating people. It's, it's self-giving. It's It's humble. It's being engaged. It's coming close. Well, I want to pray a benediction on you. Um, there are lots of good questions in there that I didn't answer. And they're, they're all practical questions about what do I do? Uh, what, are, what are some things that I can do? And I just encourage you to come down the front and talk to me. Uh, you can talk to, uh, to Robin. Um, talk to people 
uh, that you trust and ask them their thoughts. But there's one thing I felt um, maybe that the Lord would have me to say. And it's something to the older men. Young men need an armor bearer. Men, young men need an armor bearer. They don't need someone who's busy doing their own thing all the time. They need someone that will come alongside them and help them to do their job well and help them to do the things that God's called them to do. And God has blessed me so much in the last 10 years with armor bearers for me. And I just let you know, I need armor bearers. See, when God gives you a vision, and this is for the younger men, when God gives you a vision and something that you need to do, it'll be risky and it'll be beyond what you can do. And you need to go after it, but older men, they need an armor bearer. That's alongside them, someone who's praying for them. Someone who's kind of going, go get them, tiger. <laughs> get them. You, you, get in there, son. You, God's going to use you and you've got gifts and you just got to get in there. And, and sometimes they give some feedback about some ways that they can do things better. That's happened to me too. But the thing that blesses the socks off of me is older men that get alongside me and say, go get them, son. Don't underestimate the power of that. I spoke to a men's convention yesterday of over a thousand men. And my mate was with me, my mate Kurt, who preached here. And do you know what he said to me when we first woke up in, in the bedroom? We we're in this twin room. He said to me, Pete, I've just been lying here thinking about what I could say to you so that you could do your job well today. And older men, that's what you need to do. You need to get up in the morning and you need to be thinking about a young man in the church and the things that you could say and do and pray for them so that they do well. And if you're not, you need to start doing that. Just find a dude that's on your heart and just go to him and say, I'm just going to commit to praying for you every day. And when they do something and you get to see it, you can just go, well done. If, they, if you see something they could grow in, you, you can tell them about it, but just back them in. Have their back. Here ended the lesson. Let me pray a blessing on you. A lot of you are doing it, and if you're doing it, I'll just say more power to you. If you're not doing it, get doing it. All right? It's important. We pray this blessing. Now, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, powerful shepherd, equip you with everything good for doing his will and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.